Consummate Athlete seeks health, community, and adventure through movement. And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life. Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real-life consummate athletes. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It is going well. Yeah, I'm excited uh, for today's episode. I'm excited for, I guess, everything, really. I guess I, hopefully you can hear that in my voice. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so how has your new year been so far? You've been pretty much like neck deep in making plans for people, getting people started on the right foot. That makes it sound like I'm drowning or something. Yeah, it's been busy for sure, but uh, I think it always is this time of year. You know, people get through the holidays and start looking, you know, into the future. Um, but yeah, yeah, we're we're into it. I think we're we're well into January. Hopefully, you had a chance to look back and look forward, and and now you're on the path. Yeah, yeah. I feel like in the last few years, I've gotten a lot better at like the the beginning of the year not going super hard on something. I've I've definitely had the tendency to like. You know, new year, new me, billion hour training weeks, that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, partially because we are not in, you know, sunny California or Spain or something, it's it's a little easier to maybe just be a little calmer about the approach this year. Yeah, maybe. I think with a lot of my clients, I try and, you know, start where you are, but continue where you are, right? I think is the idea too. You're probably doing a lot of things that are fine and good or good enough for now. And, you know, you can take a, a tiny step in one direction in one of those elements. Maybe. We actually did a post on that this week about sort of, you know, both celebrating what you are doing well and then thinking about, you know, okay, what's like the next small thing to tweak and not making sweeping changes right away, but just you know, looking at your, your day and sort of thinking about like, oh, you know, okay, I'm really consistently like doing the training that's in my schedule and that's great, but you know, maybe I need to hydrate a little more throughout the day or, you know. Yeah. And for a lot of us, right. I think that's the reality as, as busy athletes, as busy humans, right. As adults, you know, it's not always just as throw more volume at it, right. As much as we like to debate volume versus intensity or this training thing, you know, the, the bike riding is important. It's a big piece, right. But when we look at, you know, any of these tiny little nutrition things, right. And again, not a, a big diet, but it could be preparing, you know, the, the, the cliche preparing. But when I say preparing, I mean like cooking six chicken breasts instead of one, right. Or, or chopping something or learning a new recipe on a Sunday is a big one we've been doing, you know, to try and expand, right. And, and for you call these rock slide habits in our, in our book, right. And it's this idea of, you know, rather than thinking about like these huge wide sweeping changes, could I spend Sunday learning how to make chicken in a new way? Or maybe I've never cooked chicken and I need to learn how, right. But then how does that landslide or, or domino into you know a whole year of eating you know different types of chicken yeah exactly <laughs> that's that's hopefully that's like a, a gif or something different types of chicken yeah there you go i did it better yeah, yeah, yeah. there's two versions now i think today's episode is a really interesting one because it's it's a super important one and i think a lot of people tend to kind of Okay, so it's about concussions. I'll just say that. Yeah, sometimes Spoiler we like alert. tease it, right? Yeah. And then, um, yeah, no, start with the start with the start. Yeah. But I think what's interesting about this is we know so many people, and I mean, I'm certainly guilty of this. Like, I've ended up in the hospital with a concussion before. Of you know, you you get hit in the head, and you sort of you feel okay, so now you you want to get back right away, or like things are starting to get better, so you want to get back right away, and you know, get get back to where you were, and yeah, like like you were saying kind of before, like not meet yourself where you are right now you want to meet yourself where you were pre-concussion like immediately yeah and we have connor p collins on he's from ancaster so just outside of toronto ontario uh, we actually met his his son was at a, a clinic that i was doing in the in the fall there um and we didn't meet there but, but then through mark roca who's been on the podcast uh we had been talking about different concussion people because i always try and keep you know my network growing and concussions are a big concern right and we're seeing more of these i think i think i'm okay in saying that um or at least people are paying attention more instead of just sort of I think so. Skating yeah. Over yeah. It. The symptoms and this like, you know, when it pro prolongs, right? There's the initial incident. But in any case, Mark said, you know, you're in a photo with 
with Connor, right? And I'm at the clinic. That's the guy he was telling me about is in a picture with me, but I didn't realize that that was who he was talking about. So anyhow, by serendipity, we ended up and, and not, you know, we were trying to do more podcasts because it's an area I'm interested in as far as the treatment and the avoidance and the where the research at. And Colin is a massage therapist, but also specializes, I would say, in, in concussion treatment, helping people work through hashing through some of these symptoms. So he has a podcast that's worth checking out. He has a a couple episodes on creatine and concussion, which is a, a cool developing area. Um, and then he also has one with kids and concussions. And then we sort of went more general concussions with this episode. So I think if you were like wanting to go deep on this and what Connor has to say, I think you should look up Connor and go see him uh, if, if that's relevant to you. But also just there's a, a host of podcasts. So I'll try and link to those. Uh, but yeah, we go through the whole host of, you know, what a concussion is, you know, where are we at with that definition how to know, you know, what do you do as a coach? I try and really hash in and get, you know, it's very nebulous when you call, you know, so we try and talk through some scenarios a little bit. And uh, I think this is important, even if you haven't had a concussion, I think this is probably one of the most important episodes you can listen to just so you know what to sort of be on the lookout for and what to be thinking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this has developed so much over the last few years right we, we don't know a ton about it still and, and it's different between people so it is it, it's developed you know even just how much rest you take in the day preceding right this has evolved so it's a lot of different ideas there um, and and we go through what I see often with is the sort of as if it be- persists there's often not you know we don't get directed to go see the right type of specialist so we talk through that and how someone like Connor uh, can be of help just working through who to go see right yeah for sure Peter do you have any do you have any concussion stories or well I think part of my own interest like I've been very fortunate in my life that I don't knock on wood have a ton of persistent symptoms in, in the traditional sense at least but I've had a lot of concussions in my life uh, I quit hockey eventually, <laughs> probably too late, uh, because I was a very small cyclist and the, the people kept getting bigger I was playing with. So I had a lot of like just full knocked out. And uh, on my bike, I've had a couple good ones for sure. And, and I think it, it almost comes with the territory, I think, of racing mountain bikes is that you end up hitting your head at some point. Right. So as I've gotten older, I think I've been better at, you know, I actually went down in a race a few years ago and, and just like called it just, you know, sat it out, got taken out even though I was generally okay. Yeah, I remember when I was in college, the like health clinic at college actually like nicknamed my bike because they got so like it was in the lobby so many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I I have also had that and I think I've definitely gotten more cautious in my my old age. Mm-hmm. Shout out to my public health teacher who let me retake a final that I took like the afternoon after getting hit by a car while concussed right right yeah it's, it's such a developing area right as far as prevention you know I, i'm a big believer and i've tried to really you know this is why the skills development is important and not pushing you know people to go race at too high a level too soon uh, and mountain biking we've certainly seen I, I think an increase because the courses have changed they become i call them more acutely technical so there's more high flying features versus just like a rocky course right, uh, right. but then we're sending you know both masters athletes and youth onto these things with these acute you know jumps or drops on them right can we talk about very quickly before we get into it your out of 10 approach to obstacles yeah so and i actually have an article or two that are sort of around this like risk-based you know because i i don't know you know you go see someone like connor or you know a, a different a doctor a physiotherapist after after you've had it right i can help you you know maybe ease back into the exercise but that's not what i do right the the actual therapy afterwards the diagnosis so i you know i think that my job as a coach is to help you not you know have too much risk we acknowledge you know at some point you're going to unexpectedly hit your pedal and go over you know and and fall or or whatever it doesn't go but we look at you know risk you know i I often ask clients is this a 10 out of 10 right when i go off of a drop is it a 10 out of 10 that i'm going to land and roll away um, and you have to be careful because some of the, you know, junior men sometimes, and sometimes the masters. Everything is 11 know, out of 10. Some people will say have different risk tolerances and, and just awareness of risk. So you do have to sometimes be the voice of reason. But, you know, it could be a test retest of like, can you drop off a curb and land on your rear wheel is one that clients know really well, right? It's just something arbitrary, right? Can you direct, can you call it like pool? Can you say, I'm going to land front wheel or rear wheel or at this point off of something that has zero, you know, you could fall over, but it would be like two inches off the ground before we go and do something bigger, right? And if it's a nine or an eight or a seven or a one, 
you know, we're throwing ourselves off a cliff, then we go back to the curb and use a smaller, right? And this is logical, but sometimes when there's like a deadline, like it's nationals or I have to do this to keep up where the other people did it, right? This is where we can get into trouble. So I think, you know, when we're thinking about concussion or injury, this is definitely the like, you know, is it worth it, right? And I think this is the same discussion we have with supplements of what we have with it, any training, right? Is, is, you know, the risk reward, can we do this consistently over time, right? And throwing ourselves off of cliffs. I will say, I think in our book, we have a few different chapters that kind of cover that, whether it's like what new gear you need to get, or yes, like how to think about supplements, where we go through like all of the like risk reward, like kind of questions to ask yourself. And I think we often don't take enough time to do that. And I think in this episode, you're talking a lot about taking the time to really think about how you're feeling and like check in with yourself. And I think a lot of people who've had concussions who have come back, come back with like a better awareness of their body and how it works and their brain and how it works. Yeah. It's such an interesting, you know, how you end up with down that path. I've had a few clients who have ended up with, um, you know, years basically. And then a few in like the multiple, you know, months extended, you know, periods in most cases, you know, it's going to be a day or two, maybe, you know, maybe a week. Uh, and we talk through that sort of that progression of like, you know, you're, you're the person who's the day or two is the couple weeks. And then you get into like months to years, right. And, and how you sort of hash through that, right. And mm-hmm. deal with that. Cool. Well, let's, let's get into it. Enjoy this conversation all about concussions. Connor, thank you for taking the time today to be on the show with us. Um, yeah. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me, and, and welcome to everybody that's listening. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm excited to have this conversation and hopefully get uh, some information out to uh, a broader audience about this really, really important topic. So awesome. uh, looking forward to getting into it. Now, you have a podcast, The Concast. Uh, which we'll link to, um, and, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. We had uh, I, I randomly looked at the reviews or the comments, which you never want to do, uh, but it actually came up just in my podcast, and it was actually positive. And the person, it was a, a massage therapy student, I believe, and, and they said, you know, he practices in the way that I'm hoping to, so I really enjoy and get a lot from this podcast. So I was wondering if you, when you hear that, like what what does that what what how do you practice? What do you take that to mean? Yeah, it's it's a it's a good question. Uh, I've been doing this for uh, I think I'm in year 14 now, and I'll speak to kind of the concussion piece because that's sort of the topic that we're we're discussing. When I first got into this field, I was looking and treating a lot of triathletes, um, endurance runners, marathon runners, half Ironman, uh, Ironman athletes, and and sort of had more of an interest in uh, injuries to those athletes as well as injuries to the foot and ankle. And then uh, I've always been really curious and, and just always thought that I just don't, the more you learn, uh, as I'm sure you can appreciate, the more you realize you don't know anything. And, um, and so I've, I started to treat more athletes in the contact space, understood that I, I really wasn't understanding what a concussion was, how to help guide people and, and help people appropriately. And so I just started reading, taking courses. Uh, and I've always been a person to really just reevaluate my practice style. Uh, I consider my, my practice style to be very thorough. I, I always want to screen people for appropriate red flags, do a thorough health history, and, and come up with as many tools as possible to try and help somebody, whether that be something that's not necessarily in my scope of practice, but I can refer out to them. So taking this sort of, you know, holistic approach, which I know is thrown around a lot, uh, and maybe that's what people would consider me as, um, but uh, just sort of always investigating, reevaluating my practice style, looking at my own personal biases within my practice, and just trying to become the best version uh, of what I consider to be a practitioner uh, as possible, which I think is just having our, our patients uh, best interests in mind or our athletes best interests in mind and offering them up all of the tools to help them get better. I think that's good. And, and I definitely have gotten that sense from your podcast. You know, you have a couple, there's like tennis elbow, there's all different ones on there uh, where you sort of do go through. And, you know, I was, I was, you know, you talked a little about, you know, maybe biopsychosocial, just sort of like the stress aspects, you know, what's going on in someone's life. But then you also talked about, you know, I, I think it was for the tennis elbow when you said like, you could even try something like kinesiology tape or something, right? Like the evidence may not be amazing, but some people find it's like, they really like it, right? And it's a low cost 
you know, low risk type thing. And I liked, you know, you weren't just like kin tape is horrible. Kin tape is bad. You know, yeah. I'm just picking that out of the thin air here uh, uh, yeah. as an example. But um, do you think when you say you're challenging your biases, is there something that you think has shifted in the last, you know, 10 years? You, you said, certainly I, I do empathize with the idea of feeling like you just don't know anything the more yeah. you read stuff. Uh, is there something that comes to mind, um, you know, that, that has shifted a bit for you in the last couple of years? I, I think that when you get into something new, especially in healthcare specifically, and you start to help people, uh, it can kind of do weird things to your ego where mm -hmm. you become or you can become quite egocentric and, and you sort of get uh, caught up in the sort of my way is the best way. And then you can you can choose to head down that path or you can ha have circumstances. And I think for me, it was just circumstances where, especially with the concussion piece, I just knew that I didn't know as much as I should. And that was at the same time when research was starting to emerge because concussion research is very new in the context of, uh, of evidence and research. And, and as that started to emerge, I realized that Number one, my interests were changing because I'd spent so much time in one space. And I'm, a, I'm the type of person that I can get a little bit bored of doing the same thing over and over. So it's not that I don't appreciate working with cyclists, marathon runners, and, and half Ironman. I still work with that group, but it was time for a bit of a change. Uh, and then just becoming, I think, more humble in the realization that, look, a lot of what we talk about in our space uh, because of the research element, there's a few things that happen. People scoff when there isn't research, but even in the research space, there's a lot of bias. There's a lot of misinterpretation. There's a lot of differences in research design and just the recognition that just because number one, there isn't hard and fast evidence, it doesn't mean that we should throw something out. Uh, but at the same time, being able to draw from evidence and research as well as your own clinical experience and putting a package together and then recognizing that that package may morph a little bit depending upon the person that you're dealing with. When I started to do that, I started to see that the feedback that I was receiving was better than before uh, as well as I enjoyed it more because it was, it was different. It wasn't that patient comes in, I do the same thing over and over and over for the same condition. Uh, and so I think it's just a, you know, a matter of time as well as just investigation and, and curiosity and then just being humble and just recognizing that there are a lot of other people out there that are substantially smarter than me that I can learn from. And when you realize that is really when you kind of open up your, your door to learning and opportunity and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that's honest. Yeah, thank you. That was sort of like a on the spot question I gave you there that just sort of cropped into my mind. So um, I think you're right. Like, it's very hard in anything as you become more experienced to, you know, you, as you say, ego, right, like creeps in, you've put in the time, you know, a lot of stuff. And maybe you've, you know, you've helped a lot of people, right. But it's, I think it's that uh, challenge to stay open, right. And you're right, sometimes it's like a one, one client, one patient comes in and just like boggles your mind, right. And you're just exactly. like, how did I not think about that, right? And it's a challenge to stay, stay open. I, I do, one of the reasons that I was really curious about you is that you do seem to have a good range, right? Or like this more generalist approach. It's all in that area, but like you have, I, I can see you took like diplomas and in, in sort of sport injury, but also massage. And so do you have that range, right? I'm curious, uh, I won't spend too much time on education. We'll get right into concussions here, but why did you choose that sort of like multi, is it three diplomas you ended up with or a degree and a couple diplomas? Yeah, I have a degree and then a couple of diplomas. Um, I, uh, my education is, is like, it's somewhat, uh, just a period in time where I think everybody has that period in time where they have something substantial happen to them that sort of creates a path for them. And I was doing a degree at Western and I found the degree quite broad and I wasn't getting what I thought out of it necessarily. Like it was, it was a degree, but I, I felt very unprepared for the quote unquote real world. And then uh, midway through that degree, I, I was at a job fair and I had a conversation with somebody that was sort of uh, affiliated with the school that I ended up going to. 
And I'd always liked uh, physical therapy and chiropractic. And at the time that I was going through school, maybe, yeah, I guess it would be close to 20 years ago, the, the manual therapy portion, the soft tissue portion in particular in physical therapy and chiropractic was starting to emerge slowly, but it wasn't something, or at least my knowledge of it at the time was it wasn't something that was very prominent within them. And now today, everybody's doing sort of manual therapy and soft tissue work. So the, the manual component of the massage and the soft tissue work was really attractive for me. And then uh, in this program, the sports injury program that I took, it was it was taught by a lot of athletic therapists with experience in, in sort of field side work and teamwork and taping and bracing and emergency care and, and sort of working with athletes and teams. And so to me, it was, you know, sort of the perfect conversation, uh, perfect sort of combination, sorry, of, of what I was looking for at the time. So I finished my degree and took a year off, worked, and then, and then just got right into it and spent three years uh, doing that and had some incredible incredible experiences working with teams and, and learning from some great people. Which is probably, you know, again, when we're talking about range, there's so many people in the physio, uh, I would say even massage world, right, that are on the, the backside of the injury or at least like the chronic side or the, you know, not the immediate 24, not the immediate care, right? So being uh, in the sport therapy team, like you, you would have gotten more like field side, quote unquote, sort of experience, right? Which is different than I would imagine most therapists end up. Yeah, for sure. I think athletic therapists spend the most time in that realm, or if you're a sport physio or sport chiropractor. Um, But it is definitely, it's definitely different seeing seeing and treating an injury right off the the acute phase, depending upon the degree of it, from when you see it uh, in clinic and 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 as we know, the more time that goes on where things aren't or haven't been looked at appropriately, the more layers of complexity get added to it, regardless of whatever that is in life. So yeah, um, yeah, I I think that, you know, speaking to your point about the broadness of my scope, some of the most valuable experiences that I had were field side. And while I don't work a lot in that space now, and I I think that that is one of the hardest jobs in therapy is being field side and, and dealing with those sort of emergency care situations and significant injuries. Those are, you know, you really have to be sort of on in terms of um, just paying attention and being reactive and, and quick thinking. Um, but those are where some of the most valuable, valuable lessons that I've learned in therapy have come from for sure. Yeah, once you have that emotion and the time-driven stuff and, you know, people are saying they want to get back on the field and, you know, there's – yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a good segue into concussions, right? Because I think that you're, you're sort of hinting at this, like, emotions, the, like, do we keep playing, you know, the heat of the moment, you know, we're, we're competing, we're practicing. Um, so I wonder if we start – do you have a good definition of what a concussion is or, or how you think about it right now? I don't want to put you on the spot for, like, a dictionary definition, but what – what is a concussion? Uh, a concussion is a functional brain injury as a result of a structural trauma. So uh, what happens is the, the brain will move inside of the head. Uh, as a result of that, at a microscopic level, there will be some sort of change to the nerve cell within the brain or the neuron. Uh, it can get a little bit stretched, irritated, swollen. Uh, and as a result of that, you are changing the function uh, or the physiology of that cell uh, in a way that is bringing about the symptoms that you are feeling. Uh, And depending upon how sort of far you want to go into that, we could even tease that out further, but um, I'm not, I'm not sure whether that's something you want to do. That's good. Let me ask a couple like clarifying questions. Like uh, if I get, if I have a concussion, will they be able to tell on like a MRI or a CT or an X-ray? Like, can, can we see this? Uh, not, no. Um, the majority of the research looking at that would look at people that have suffered a concussion and there are plenty of research, uh, studies looking at things like MRIs on brains post concussion. Uh, and it's something to the effect of like 99.5% have zero findings of that 0.5%. The the vast majority of those findings uh, would be considered to be benign or non-related. So uh, x-ray, CT scan, uh, and MRI 
uh, will not show. If there's something showing in the brain on those uh, images, CT scan and MRI, it would be something uh, either uh, unrelated or more substantial. Um, but in terms of the, the, the most readily used images that we have available to us right now uh, within our healthcare system, the answer is no. Okay. Um, and that matches with what sort of I've heard as well. I'm wondering, another common thing is, uh, like, do you have to actually, like, if I'm a cyclist, do I have to, like, have, like, a broken helmet to have a concussion? Or do I have to, like, directly smoke my head off of something to, to have, like, a, a TBI or, or a concussion? Uh, no. Uh, another good question. And a, a very sort of common misconception as well about concussions. So... Uh, some people think that you have to lose consciousness to have a concussion, which is not true. You don't have to lose consciousness. You also don't have to uh, hit your head. You merely have to do something to create enough force with uh, a whiplash style force to create enough movement within the brain uh, that it would cause the injury. Uh, this can be front and back, side to side, or rotational. And there is some thought around certain movements of the head being uh, potentially uh, leading to more substantial uh, sort of prolonged or drawn out recovery, but that's sort of up for debate still. Uh, but you can slip and fall, uh, you can hit your head, uh, or you can be hit and keep moving even and uh, sustain a concussion as a result of that. So someone might be in like a, a car crash, like hit from behind, get a whiplash, like, and their head doesn't actually hit the steering wheel, but just because their like head whips forward and then, you know, stops then they're essentially it's like a brain in a fishbowl almost, right? Like that's, you know, the brain's Absolutely. moving maybe a bit in there. Um, yeah, it's called the coup contra coup effect, or that's sort okay. of one of the one of the thoughts around it. Brain hitting one side of the skull and then the other. Yeah, okay. Now, let's say we're, um, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to give people like an example of like when the question, you know, first aid, I just went through wilderness first aid and stuff. And it's always like, when, when is this, we're phoning the ambulance or when is this like, we're going to the hospital? Like, would you say if it's a concussion, if it's like, we've crashed on the bike, like, when are we actually like phoning for emergency and I guess versus going to the hospital. And then there'll be the third where we just sort of like watch things at home, I guess. Like, is it always or? Yeah. Good question. Um, so in the context of a crash on a, on a bike, um, the, the primary things that you're worried about are uh, obviously uh, substantial injury to the neck, um, as well as something more substantial than a concussion. So things like skull fracture, you know, just some of these traumatic injuries that can happen in a crash. And the reality of it is, is that you don't necessarily know the nature of the accident uh, right away. Uh, you know, the the example uh, that I'll I'll give you is uh, sort of like a a neck injury, or the this the the theory or the suspect that there might be a broken neck right? Like in the context of a crash or a hit to, you know, two football players come into, uh, come into a head to head impact. If you were to talk to a sport medicine physician and ask them, uh, would they feel confident on the field with what they have available to them to not board that patient? The vast majority would say no, uh, because they don't, you know, if someone has say tenderness in the neck and they've got numbness down the arm, everyone's going to board that patient and send them to the hospital to be checked out. So in the context of a, a scenario where you don't know some of the other injuries and that person's had a, a substantial sort of wreck, if you will, and there, there are other things going on where they're lying there and they're um, maybe they've got some neck pain you know, then the the majority of first aid and emergency protocols would say that person needs to go uh, and be transported via the ambulance. And obviously, this is sort of broad advice and very dependent upon the scenario that would come that you would come right, across. Right, right. So this should not be taken as medical advice. Yeah, so for forth. sure. Nothing yeah. of what we're discussing should really be taken as medical <laughs> advice. But it, it's worth, you know, teasing out the idea. Uh, now, in the assumption that um, somebody gets up, 
from the crash and they're sort of, you know, they, they are not uh, fully aware of where they are. Uh, and then they start to uh, come to, uh, in my opinion, everyone that has a suspected concussion needs to be evaluated by somebody well-versed in concussion as soon as possible. So I don't love giving the advice of go home and see how it pans out without seeing a healthcare professional, uh, mainly because, uh, especially if it's been a substantial crash, you want to rule those more serious things out. Uh, and it's, it's really more about that uh, than uh, anything that's going to be done immediately within that first one to two hours of, of having had a concussion uh, that that would, you know, offer any benefit or, or negative consequence. But the key thing is more substantial injuries. So uh, typically I suggest, you know, family doctor, uh, if not uh, emergency room or uh, urgent care. Okay, that makes sense. So in cycling, sometimes I've seen this like as a rough rule of thumb, and it, it doesn't maybe take care of the like whiplash scenario, but the idea that if there's like any dirt on the helmet or scuffs on the helmet, or obviously a dent or a crack, the helmet's, you know, in pieces, um, that this is a good sign that like, A, we need to pull out of like, we stop, we're not racing anymore, we're not practicing anymore. Um, would you agree with that rough thing? Or like, what is that missing if we use that as a rough rule? Yeah, I wouldn't agree with that. Yeah, because um, yeah. it's so it's so dependent upon, for example, the force by which you get whiplash injuries is substantially less than you would a concussion. So, like four Gs, you can get a whiplash injury, um, which is substantially less than, let's say, the force that it would require for your airbags to go off. Uh, and a lot of times whiplash injuries can mimic symptoms of concussion. So they can create things like obviously neck pain. They can create sort of the feeling of, of fogginess or the glaze over. Uh, and the other thing about concussions is they have this sneakiness to them where in the first 72 hours, things can change where, uh, you, in the context of cycling, you get in a crash, you get up, you've got all of this adrenaline, uh, and then you feel okay. And then you go home and then six, eight hours later, you have a headache, you feel fogginess. So it's, it's not always that immediate sort of, uh, you have s some amnesia where you don't orient yourself to person, place or thing like that's almost happens less, um, where, uh, you don't necessarily know, uh, or I wouldn't know the context of that patient's concussion history, um, or there's there's so many factors that go into play, and everybody's a little bit different. You know, there's some discussion around genetic predisposition um, and genetic mutations of certain uh, certain cellular uh, receptors and such that might you know, lead to potential concussion. There's concussion history. I, I am quite um, conservative in my acute management, I guess you would say, uh, only because I've seen so many symptoms creep up after the fact in the, the subsequent sort of 48 to 72 hours, especially with children, where it's kind of like, it's probably time to just shut it down for that day if you've had a crash. Like almost, yeah. And that's, that's a tricky part from a coaching perspective, right? But you're saying like, if it's, if we're going to call it like, this is a crash where it's not just like a small slide out or something, you know, right. or, you know, maybe the knee scuff, but like, obviously like, you know, it wasn't that high speed maybe too, is maybe a piece I, I've seen I'm trying to think of like random rules that you see thrown out. Like there's something about falls from height for kids, where if it's like, if you fall f further than your height or like your own height, then like you should suspect, I think that was actually for a spinal now that I think through that. But. Yeah. I think that's more, it's, it's more related to spinal. And that's the thing. There aren't really any hard, fast rules for, you know, because let's say, let's give an example of a, of a, a cycling crash where a per person goes over the handlebars and they land sort of on their bum. Like they flip over their handlebars and they land on their bum and they're sort of sitting there. 
and they create this sort of anterior whiplash as a result of that and then sort of sit up and catch themselves, well, there's not going to be any dirt on the helmet. There's the, the helmet's going to look pristine, uh, but that could certainly create enough whiplash force, especially if you're traveling at a reasonable rate of speed, um, which a lot of cyclists would be to create a, to have a concussion at that point. And we actually have a, a listener and um, he, I guess had done like, I, I don't know if this was even related, but he had, he fell fairly well. He had done like judo and stuff like, so like he didn't do outstretched arm, you know, he didn't break his arm. He didn't bash his face off the ground, but he sort of, as you say, like endoed scorpion endo, you know, landed sort of like on all fours or whatever. I'm not sure if his face actually touched the ground. Let's pretend it didn't. Um, but then, yeah, he ended up with like a bit of like sort of a two week recovery period off of that. Right. And right. Um, didn't like his helmet was fine. Yeah. 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 So I think you have to sort of take every everything on a case by case basis. But I guess uh, it's almost like could we use a rule of thumb of like if if it's maybe you're not going to like this either, but I'm going to keep throwing these out there. Um, if, if, you know, if it's a crash and it's like, it's not like, boom, you're like up instantly. You know what I mean? Like if you have to pick up your bike almost like, is that like, are we getting in the direction or like, it's, it's so hard. It's right? so hard because that person could be uh, so high on adrenaline at that time that they could be picking up their bike because they've picked up their bike so many times and their their brain is just sort of on this autopilot and then like they pick on. up yeah. yeah they pick up their bike and they they you know i've heard of instances where they pick up their bike they go to get on their bike and then they realize oh wait i don't yeah where am i right there's, now there's there's four bikes to get on which one do you get on yeah right and yeah. uh so i've even you know we've i've done some indoor cycling stuff where yeah someone will crash Wait, and, you mean they crash indoors or you're saying like as a rehab, they were indoor cycling? No, no, they're, uh, they crash like indoor velodrome cycling. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I was like, I've seen some good Zwift fails, like on the indoor <laughs> trainer, but this is, yeah. there's a rash of Zwift concussions here. Yeah. So they're in the velodrome, they crash and their automatic reaction is get up and grab your bike, get up, look for your bike and grab it. Um, but that can still happen. And then you can realize like, oh, like where sort of where am I? I've lost my sense of orientation. I don't really know where I am. Um, certainly if, certainly if there's, you know, there's, there's obviously some very, uh, obvious rules, loss of consciousness, um, inability to orient yourself are, are two really obvious signs. Um, so unable to orient yourself to, you know, time person, place or thing, uh, and then loss of consciousness, uh, if you've lost consciousness, you've certainly got a concussion or something more substantial than that. We could we can certainly use that rule, uh, but all of the other stuff is is quite sort of gray in terms of yeah. It would be you know my advice is to err on the side of caution uh, and get evaluated as soon as possible. And then if there are other um, you know, if you've, you've taken first aid, if there's other signs of spinal injury, like then it's red like, flags, treat it. yeah, yeah, re yeah, red flags, treat it like a spinal and then they go, they get transported. Yeah. And so we're sort of looking at, you know, if there's a crash, we're going to, it's a little fuzzy, but like really like if it's substantial, especially I think, you know, we can talk about Rowan's law here in a second, but if we're talking about like under 25, you know, kids, youths, you know, this is, I think even more so we need to err on the side of caution beyond that. Like you're an adult, you should take care of yourself. Um, mm -hmm. but from a coaching and a therapist perspective, it's, it's slightly different, at least from a legal perspective, I guess. Um, but yeah, if we're, th you're seeing like, we're suspecting spinals, they're unconscious, they're getting worse, they're vomiting, you know, tons of blood, Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. these are things to phone 911. And then if it's like, no, this is like, they're, as you say, like they're, they're stable. They just, you know, maybe not quite themselves or, or at least it was just a good crash. We probably want to go get them checked out. And that could be, would, would like, do you, is that something like you or you're thinking more family doctor or like, what are, when we say go get them checked out, I think this is also a sticking point. It's okay. Do we need to go? So we're saying yes. If you're asking the question, probably yes. And then yeah. who, who, who are we going to see? I think in the context of, of just the way our healthcare system is oriented, I think, uh, if you can't get in to see your family doctor, you just, you go to the emergency room or you go to urgent care. Uh, you want to get evaluated as, as soon as possible. Uh, even if people, you know, I, I sort of have the respect of the hierarchy of medicine. And so if people want to see me initially as their uh, 
first person to manage. I have a tendency because of my scope of practice to say no, um, go see your family doctor. Uh, you know, there are chiropractors and physical therapists can diagnose. I don't have sort of that virtue by virtue of my scope of practice. So uh, they can certainly manage an initial intake as well. But if you're at a race uh, on a Saturday and you have none of that available to you or your primary sort of uh, care provider to you, I would suggest going um, to the hospital or urgent care. Okay, that's good. And I think, you know, again, sort of if we can err on the side of caution, get checked out, you know, what we're, we're sort of like underlying here, we haven't really talked about, you've hinted at it, you know, what we're trying to avoid is, is a longer recovery, right? And that's the way I try and phrase it when it's like, oh, it sucks that you can't continue practice or you, you had to drop out of the race for sure. You know, you didn't get to finish that long training ride. But what we're trying to avoid is, is maybe a two-week recovery or a two-month recovery or a two-year recovery, right? And we don't want to dwell on that because I find sometimes it's like it gets scary and people are like stressed about that, like from, from impact. But For can you sure. talk a bit about those like miss oh, – we've talked a bit about the missteps. So missteps are not getting checked out, continuing to practice, you know, this sort of stuff. Um, I guess the most logical thing is what is this like post-concussion syndrome or, or this like extended recovery? So concussions really broken up into sort of three – categories. The first is the sort of concussion phase, which in the majority of the research would suggest that can range from day zero to roughly 30 days-ish. So anyone that's sort of inside of 30 days and they're progressing, we would consider that to be relatively normal progression within that 30-day period. And you know, there, there are some return to play and return to sport protocols that are sort of over a seven to 10-day period. Um, but it can be drawn out a little bit, especially when you're not looking at like elite level athletes in the general population, um, anywhere from zero to 30 days, we would consider that to be normal progress. 30 days to three months is considered post-concussion syndrome. Uh, and this is usually like, let's say I have somebody that's at five weeks but they've continued to make progress and they're continuing to make progress, then I, you know, and I, I'm not sure that the the label labeling the patient with that outside of the context of this conversation is even really that important. But if they're at five weeks, they continue to make progress, then I'm still happy with the progress that they're making. Uh, but let's say they're now at between 30 days and, th and three months. So let's say they're at two and a half months, they're really not making much progress, then they're into that post-concussive phase and then three months or beyond is what we consider to be persistent post-concussive symptoms. Um, we sort of use the word persistent back pain in those cases. Really three months seems to be that time period uh, where the persistent sort of tag or uh, word is used for, for the symptoms that a person's feeling, which just means really more time has gone on maybe they've received adequate care, maybe they have not. And with time comes complexity layers and many, many other factors uh, that can influence the symptoms that they're feeling uh, either physically still and or emotionally or psychologically at that point. And that's not to say that those symptoms, sorry, psychological or emotional uh, do not happen before that. Right. Right. I, I like that you talked about the labeling too, right? Because it's you know, again, I think this is where we get into individuality and, you know, what is your concussion history? You know, there's, there's many reasons that it might take longer than tomorrow to, to get over this, this, right. And I think the tricky part, we alluded to it earlier, but this idea that, you know, you can't see the concussion, we can't x-ray you and say, yep, there it is, the broken, broken brain, right. like you're gonna, you know, six, six weeks and you're better. Um, For sure. But when we have something physical, A, it's easier to explain to other people that I have a broken leg. I can't play. You know, it's not yep. an option. I can't play basketball. And then also just like the recovery is maybe like it's recovery. And I can like, okay, the broken bone is now healed. We can see it's healed. Away you go, like therapy and you're back. Right. It's not quite as predictable. No. Do you think, uh, maybe let's, it's almost a back step, but I just want to make sure we don't miss anything. So we have missteps. Like, again, we don't go and get checked. Is there anything else that comes to mind when, when you see like common errors, when people end up with maybe prolonged things that like you wish they would have done or, or what are, you know, I'm, I'm fishing away for just missteps, mistakes we make as coaches, as yeah. athletes, parents. I think, uh, returning to 
uh, activity safely, uh, not doing that early enough in the prog process uh, is seems to be uh, a detriment to recovery. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, go back out and play hockey right away. But uh, one of the most strong pieces of evidence that we have is the suggestion that sub-symptom threshold cardiovascular exercise has been shown to be quite beneficial to the recovery process. And the majority of those studies happen in and around four-ish days. Um, so, you know, getting evaluated for that and, and seeing a practitioner that can help guide you appropriately in uh, cardiovascular exercise as early in the process as possible, as well as we know that sitting in a dark room is not something that needs to be done. Pure rest beyond maybe 48 to 72 hours uh, doesn't serve as any more purpose than that. Uh, so certainly you do need to take some time, you know, the, the day after uh, or a couple of days after in sort of gathering yourself, managing things, especially if your symptoms are very prominent. Uh, but this, the, the thought that we have to sit in a dark room for, say, six months to wait this out uh, is no longer, uh, or I shouldn't say that, it shouldn't be discussed anymore. It still, unfortunately, is. And then getting uh, the proper management for, from somebody that's well-versed uh, in concussion and under medical supervision, starting to in increase your cardiovascular activity uh, is where the majority of the benefit that we see uh, lies in the research right now. And you mentioned, I'll link to your, you did an episode on your podcast about kids, uh, you know, youth concussion. Uh, so certainly if people are like curious about specifics for youth, uh, but the one I'm trying to think of the two, there's two things, but the first one that reminds that, that you just reminded me of is the idea that we don't need to wake them up like that night. You know, we were at the big race, got a concussion, got it checked out. He's got a concussion chill, but you, right. you were saying we don't need to be waking up every two hours. Yeah. There's no, uh, they've they've sort of taken that away that you don't need to go in and wake uh, the child up um, now the caveat to that is parents are nervous and uh, some people have still said like you can go in and check sort of check on them just sort of observe them and, and make sure that everything's okay in that respect uh, but you don't need to be continually waking them up um, during the course of their sleep uh, we know that one of the most well there's there's if I could speak to three things, we know that the three things that need to be managed post-concussion that are the most important are post-concussive headache, sleep, and presence of mood disorder. So um, sleep is one of those things. Sleep and exercise are like the two things that we need to regulate. We need to, if we're having trouble sleeping, um, we need to do everything we can to help regulate sleep. Uh, and that would kind of speak to your point about continually waking people up and sort of disrupting sleep. Um, and then, um, you know, exercising and, and getting them, getting people back, you know, graded and with appropriate exercise and guidance is really, really important along with headache. And then if there's a mood component, especially if that person has a history of mood disorder, depression, anxiety, which they've been medicated for, uh, those need to be managed, uh, appropriately and as soon as possible as well. Okay. And then, you know, we're, you're talking about headaches, you're talking about sleep. So, you know, some people might be like, oh, you know, so if I have a headache, then we need to manage this, then I'll take like my, my NSAIDs and I'll take some sleeping pills and we're good. Is that, is that the idea? Uh, no, definitely not. Don't be, <laughs> don't be self-medicating. Uh, yeah, it's, First of all, you know, get evaluated by someone that is well-versed. And then, you know, there may be, there, there certainly may be a, a pharmacology or a pharmacotherapy component to it coming from your doctor. They may tell you to manage. Typically, they're not suggesting ANSAIDs because ANSAIDs are blood thinners or have that sort of component to them. But they might suggest over-the-counter medication. They might prescribe medication for you. Uh, and I love to think being sort of a complementary practitioner that um, drugs should be used sparingly, but the reality of it is is that they do offer therapeutic benefit uh, yeah. and certainly are readily used in managing post-concussive headache, especially if the person already has a headache history like migraine sufferer and such. Um, we know that those have a tendency to spike post-concussion. 
So there's that piece. One of the, you know, there are three major systems that can be implicated in concussion, the nervous system at large, the vestibular or balance system, and then the eyes. And there's always going to be that autonomic nervous system component that uh, helps with managing stress and sleep and, and often cre can create that sort of anxious feeling that we get. And sleep is one of the things that helps us curve that and manage that as well as sleep uh, will help uh, manage headache and then exercise in a guided fashion can also manage the nervous system and the headache and that sort of exercise intolerance that we see post post in injury. Okay. And I think we'll get into those, those, you know, two or three different areas that we could, you know, look at helping treat a concussion or, and certainly post concussion syndrome in a second. I just want to cover off a couple more things. You know, you mentioned headaches, sleep, presence of mood. So an adult might consider, you know, having a couple drinks or something, you know, it's, oh, this is a stressful day. I had a big crash. I, I'm not sleeping or I can't get to sleep. I have a headache. Obviously, again, probably not good idea to be having alcohol post concussion, certainly in your 72 days, 72 hours. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, especially if you've been diagnosed, I wouldn't suggest it. One of the things when we're talking about sleep hygiene as well is we have a tendency to suggest that, you know, avoiding those sort of stimulants or depressants four to six hours before sleep, because it can, you know, can disrupt sleep. So no sugar, caffeine, alcohol, sort of within that four to six hour time frame by which you're going to bed. Um, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I wouldn't suggest it. Some people will ask me, especially if they're in like the persistent phase um, and they want to have a drink, then I, I'm all about like, you know, moderation and returning to normalcy as well. I don't think that we should be sure. too restrictive. Um, but I think that, yeah, within that 72 hour window, um, just chill out and let everything sort of settle and see where everything lies. Um, and then, you know, try to get sleep if you can. Uh, and then, and then just sort of see how things play out with, uh, your health. Yeah, and, and some of our concern, right. Is like around masking, uh, symptoms, you know, you For don't sure. want to like depress something and, and then having it, you know, a further injury because of that. And then I think in, at least in my head, I would be thinking about trying to put all of my resources towards recovering. Right. So I don't end up with this down the road. It may not work, but I mean, I'd rather not have my liver working on that versus trying to process other stuff. Right. Um, well, and I've also had instances where a person gets a concussion, goes out and parties that night and gets another one, right? Oh, gets a, really? Gets, or gets a, not another one, but gets a subsequent blow within the first 72 yeah, hours. Head, out headbanging and damn. <laughs> yeah, or they, they slip and fall because they've had too much to drink. And so, you know, one of the concerns, especially within the first seven to 10 days is, is just sort of re-injuring uh, yourself for getting a subsequent blow to the head. So a lot of it's just around sort of putting yourself in safe environments during that time. Yeah. And, and you sort of, I thought you were going to go with the direction of like, you know, that first period, we'll call it 72 hours is, you know, sensitivity to the light, sensitivity to noise, sensitivity to like decisions, sensitivity to like just rooms with tons of people in them. Um, and you could push through it, right? Cause it's not like, it's like, oh, my leg's broken, but like, you're sort of like disoriented, right? And this is, do you feel like that's some could be a misstep too? You know, I'm an athlete. I crashed out. Then I'm going to go out and to the post race party or something. Oh, for sure, for sure. Sport culture, sport culture is it's getting better, but sport culture in in certain sports more so the contact sports and this the sort of adage that like toughen up or push through, which. We know is great in athletics for certain things and like training and, and being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, I, I think in the context of injury, I, and I mean, there've been a lot of studies that have looked at underreporting in like NCAA athletics um, and underreporting in, in professional sports. We know that underreporting exists, which is why spotters have been brought into like the NHL, for example, to look at, and sort of call down if, if athletes are, uh, may have a suspected injury. So, you know, there, there, there is a shift, uh, in, in some of the educational aspects. And you'd mentioned things like Rowan's law and, and other things that have been put in place. Uh, but I, it still exists. And 
I don't know if there's an easy answer there, but I just think maybe having conversations like this, understanding the long-term implications. Um, I had a, a conversation with a, a professional athlete once in a, in a contact sport, and we were having a discussion around uh, he had had a he was sort of a fringe player, so he was trying to make the starting lineup of the sport that he was playing, and he had suffered a concussion, and then he didn't report it, and he had suffered another hit to the head maybe three or four weeks later, and he didn't report that, and he played an entire year with symptoms, and then in training camp the next year, still symptomatic, he suffered another blow, and... Uh, he was calling me um, to get my take on, and he had been talking to a number of different people, like physicians and such, and he was calling to get my take on whether he should play anymore. Right. And right. We, we we're just having a conversation sort of around the, you know, and it, it led to the impact that his decisions had made on the future of his career. And as you know, working with athletes, Athletes define them, and the, the more elite an athlete becomes, the more they define themselves as an athlete. That is their job. And so understanding that, look, if we manage this appropriately, we offer you the best chance of full recovery. And maybe that's the conversation around sort of education um, rather than, again, sort of the, the toughness mentality of things. Um, you know, if it's your ankle's tough. sore... Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. If your ankle's sore, sorry, you can sometimes push through it. Your brain's not going to let you do that. Yeah, and, and you, you know, you can see this being with parents. You know, certainly the in cycling, we have to do all these ethics courses and everything else. I imagine every sport coach and stuff has to do these. But it's always like the parents want the kid to make the team. The kids had a, a concussion. The kids had an ankle injury. The kids, whatever, you know, broke a team rule. Are you going to let them play? You know, in this sort of like ethical dilemma situation well and uh, if i could just speak to that as well if you ask a 16 year old elite level cyclist uh, or hockey player or football player that has suffered a concussion and let's say they get a concussion and then four days later which would be inside of the time frame that you should return anybody if you ask that player uh, and they still have a little bit of a headache if you said do you do you want to go play all of them would say Yes, sure. or a vast yeah. majority, because they are youth athletes, and and so, you know, we shouldn't be letting them weigh in on the decision of their return to play necessarily. And often, when the parent gets involved, that creates a very difficult situation to manage. When that was sort of when the parent is not understanding the potential implications of the early return to play or returning to play with, with symptoms still. Yeah. And it's hard to get that. We've been talking about that a bit, even, you know, in the light of COVID in the light of, you know, just even training theory, right? Like people, athletes, you know, everyone is subject to this idea that if you just work harder and work harder and work harder, it just keeps getting better and better. You keep getting fitter and fitter. Right. And the idea of whether it's rest week or taking time off in the, uh, off season or after an injury or, you know, training harder and then easier, right? Like this idea that like, it can't all be like push and it's not always linear, right? I think is very topical with this idea of concussion that it might be step back two steps now so that like in the future you can get to where you want to versus, you know, trying to like limp your way up, right? For sure. It, it's, it's all about staying you know, what I say to people is it's all about touching the brain slowly and allowing this sort of, as you said, linear progression of getting better. You're kind of like ringing the doorbell before you walk in the house rather than smashing through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. And, right, right. And you want to avoid getting on this roller coaster ride where you feel good. So you go out and, and train at a level that is beyond where you should be. And then you feel really poorly for two or three days. You take that time that you need to recover and then you do the same thing all over again. You're just on this roller coaster. Right. And that's the idea with the return to sport is that we're sort of like gradually exposing both physically, you know, sort of like very isolated on the indoor trainer or something very easy, 10 minutes. 
and then checking 24 hours and then slowly ramping up both the stimulation, the, you know, the physical demands and also the psychological demands, right? And this is the return to sport, um, which I'll link to, we don't need to necessarily go through that. You've sort of talked about gradually returning. Um, I wonder if we go into then, you know, I feel like when I'm dealing with people, one of the things as we get into this post-concussion syndrome is that often someone's not been taken through the different tests. You mentioned like vestibular. Could you take us through some of those things that should get assessed, you know, especially if we're getting past this, like you said, into the 30 days, it's getting longer, maybe even initially, like what are our options and what, what should we be asking about when we go in to get assessed? So I think, um, first and foremost is headache. Understanding headache history is really important and understanding that if you are suffering from previous headaches, um, trying to understand the quality of the headache and where that sits. There are a few different types of headaches um, that can happen. Headaches being driven from the neck muscles, for example, or a headache that is like considered to be a post-concussive tension headache or a post-concussive migraine. And those have different patterns that um, you might be able to get some advice on. Um, from there, uh, you also want to understand your sleep and sleep patterns, as well as understand if you have uh, any uh, any uh, evidence of mood disruption or mood disorder at that time, which can be done through there are questionnaires that exist that people can use. Um, from that, you can get uh, again inside of four days, you can get that Buffalo concussion treadmill test done, which I haven't sort of mentioned yet, but that is often how we evaluate um, where your exercise tolerance is, so we can properly dose you um, for exercise, um, those stages of exercise that you mentioned, it, it's a little bit more of an accurate or objective way to look at it. Um, and we can see the the heart rate that the, uh, the athlete or the patient will get symptoms at, and then we can dose them at 80% of that heart rate. And we can use that heart rate as guidance, um, to, to better suit their, their cardiovascular endurance. Uh, in and around the first 10 days to a week as well, you should get the eyes assessed and see um, whether the eyes are contributing uh, to some of the symptoms that you had. Uh, and then uh, get your neck assessed as well to see uh, whether the neck is being implicated also. The vestibular system is a little bit tricky. Uh, and typically, I have a tendency to not truly assess it until around 30 days. Uh, and the reason that I do that is um, during that time, I will be rehabbing the neck uh, as well as I don't really want to, some of the assessments that you do to assess that are things like head shaking um, quite quickly. And so I don't want to really disrupt. Uh, they're almost always going to, especially if the patient's symptomatic, uh, going to lead to further symptoms. So I have a tendency to wait about four weeks before I assess the vestibular system. Um, but certainly eyes, neck, exercise tolerance, sleep, and headache would be the big things and mood, sorry. Okay. I hadn't heard of the Buffalo treadmill thing, so that was interesting to hear. So that's with, within that first 72 hours is when that's done. Um, I would, a lot of the research is looking at around four days post. Okay. Uh, but again, you know, you, you sort of tailor that person to person. If the person's five days and they're really, really symptomatic still and they're they're not going to get on a treadmill, um, maybe they've got a, a poor health profile to begin with. Usually my advice is, you know, get out for a couple of leisurely walks within your tolerance. But in the athletic realm and they're sort of, you know, ready to go and but maybe they're uh, following, especially in the persistent or post-concussive phase, uh, you use that treadmill test. There's also been some uh, loose, uh, not loose. There's been some early research done on uh, a bike test as well, Buffalo concussion bike test out of U the University of Buffalo um, that's trying to take what they're doing with the, the treadmill test and validate it for use in a bike just because there are different utilities. Maybe someone can't use the treadmill because maybe they've got a, a knee injury or something. Um, but that allows you to be a little bit more objective and, and accurate with sort of prescribing the exercise rather than saying go to symptoms. 
Um, alternatively, uh, when I don't use that, I will use just like 60 to 70% of their maximum heart rate and guide sure. them that way. I find using heart rate is a little bit, um, just tries to give some objectivity to something that's incredibly complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really like heart rate in general. Um, and in this case, right, like it would help you know, sort of put together all the different stressors the person's under, right? So, well, and it also reins the athlete in a bit, especially if you're dealing with an athlete, because they'll go, oh, well, I felt good. So I just pushed it to 85% of my heart rate max. Right. And now I feel horrible. And it's like, well, I well, told like you most of, most of my conversations with healthy athletes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why did you go so hard? Why? Exactly. Cool. All right. Well, this is so much good information here. Uh, so I'm going to try and link. You gave me a few different links. Like I say, we'll link to your your episode on concussions in children if people want to go a little deeper on that. Um, your website is connorpcollins.com, and you work out of the Foot Knee Back Clinic in Ancaster, Ontario. Is there any other things you want to let people know? That's been fun. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please do us a huge favor. Leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us bring on, you know, great new guests. And yeah, we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on the interwebs um, at consummateathlete.com, at consummateathlete on Instagram. Uh, and I am at Molly J. Herford on Instagram and Twitter. And Peter is at Peter Glassford. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week.